you have before you an insert that's extensive. It has the first passage I will refer to. It's a passage in the book of Acts that I will refer to throughout this morning's message. Uh, Sometimes I think that we make things entirely too complicated. Growing spiritually is certainly uh, one area where such a maxim applies. Uh, There are constantly books uh, coming out with new secrets of spiritual growth and life meaning. Seminars, book studies, how-to manuals. Uh, all sorts of new books on the spiritual disciplines. It's, they're manifold. I remember from the time I came a believer some 20 years ago or a little more, it seems like every two or three years there's a new fad, new something everybody's studying in order to grow spiritually. And it's a worthy goal to grow spiritually. And it's well-intentioned, no doubt. I have a friend who's in a church that has gone through a study of a particular popular book three times. Small groups, big group, preach through the messages. In the revision of the next, the next version of the book, they go through it again. And I would just suggest that It'd be advisable for us at times to pause and consider what God has always used in the life of his people to grow them spiritually. Uh, we need not make it as, as complicated as it sometimes is. He's given us some real clarity here. And as we begin 2010, I would like to present to you once again in three sermons, uh, three main things, really four, uh, that God has given us as tools for spiritual growth. They've always been the very things that God has used to grow his people. I think by doing this, it will help each of you, if you apply these things, to grow spiritually this year and this decade and beyond. I think also as a church, if we remain committed to these things, that we will see growth there too. And I don't necessarily mean numeric growth. I mean depth, more growth, stability that will happen when we keep the main thing, the main things. God will call us to many things, but there are some particular tools he gives us to really focus upon as a church, and I hope that this serves to maybe reacquaint us with those things. I would like to begin with a passage from the book of Acts. The context is that Peter, now uh, shortly after Jesus has ascended into heaven, is preaching to a new group of believers, primarily a Jewish audience. He's very honest with them about their, uh, their part in the crucifixion of Jesus. These are people who are turned to Christ now as a result Peter's preaching to them, making a transfer, you might say, uh, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, uh, not doing away completely with the Old, but rather showing its fulfillment in Christ. And then he gives some very specific markers or tools that will be working in the life of the church, always had been before, and will go on into the future. And that is where I'd like us to spend some time focusing this morning. Hear God's word, Acts 2, starting at verse 38. I will read to verse 42. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And verse 42 is key. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word once again. Help us at the beginning of a new year to be committed again to its sufficiency in our lives. Lord, we believe it's true. Help us to see it as applicable to every aspect of our being. Help us this year to grow in grace, to grow in the gospel, to see 
the effects of our salvation have been provided by Jesus, made real in our lives every day, all the time. Lord, you've given us tools. I thank you for these. I pray that we would be about applying these tools, seeing the importance of the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread, the sacraments, and prayer. God, I pray that you encourage my brothers and sisters at the beginning of a new year as they walk with you, as they journey with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, for a long time, I have always dreamt of being able to climb Mount Everest. Now, it would require several things that I don't have. First, permission from my wife and my family. Secondly, I'd need at least two months off in April and May. And I'd also need somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000. That's on the cheap, by the way. So I know it's something I'll never be able to do. Since I cannot provide for these various elements, I read a lot about it. I've been enamored with it for many years and recently have been reading even more about it. It's such an interesting endeavor, such an interesting challenge to take on to climb this mountain. You know, Everest is the tallest mountain on the planet. It's over 29,000 feet. It straddles the border of Nepal on one side and Tibet on the other, which is now China, of course. It's in the Himalayan mountain range, and they're all massive in the Himalayas. The first ever climber summited Everest in 1953. Since then, 2,700 people have also climbed it. But 300 people in climbing it, some have made it to the top, some not, 300 people in the climb have died. Every year, four or five individuals die on average, some more, some less, years. You know, Everest isn't so much a technically difficult climb, but because of the sheer distance, the high altitude, the extremely cold temperatures, all these things combine to make it the most challenging endeavor on Earth, most think. You know, climbing a mountain like that is slow going, to say the least. Very slow going. And it requires tools. It requires equipment. Not much. You can't carry a lot at that altitude. You start the climb at 17,700 feet, which is over 2,000 feet taller than the biggest mountains in our country. You start there, all the way up to 29,000 feet. You can't carry much, but what you have is very important. It goes without saying. You have to be alive to climb Mount Everest. So you begin the journey with a certain relative amount of health, and then with equipment, you make it to the top. I would suggest to you that the Christian life that we are part of is far more analogous to climbing a mountain than just about any other thing we can do. Sometimes a race is used. But think of something slower going, something more arduous, something that looks like it's close, but it's actually a long way away, and a lot lays between here and there. That's really what the Christian life is like. I don't think we do any favors to anyone when we tell them it'll all be just easy for you once you come to Jesus. It's just going to be smooth sailing or things will be always peaceful or you won't encounter serious trials. That's just not reality. That's not what the scripture lays out for us. A picture of climbing a mountain is much more like the reality that is the Christian life. That is what spiritual growth is about. That's why I want to use it for these three weeks is the analogy we'll think of. You know, there's... Four pieces of equipment that are absolutely necessary to make progress on Everest. Uh, you have to have a specially equipped pair of boots. These are super lined to withstand extreme cold. They're hard because they have to give you stability, hold your foot in place, give you protection. They also have metal spikes on the bottom to give you traction. You all know how it is trying to walk in ice these days. 
And if you have the wrong shoes, then pretty much everyone has the wrong shoes around here. Maybe, maybe you got a chance to wear those cool shoes you bought a while ago that have traction on them, and you find that even they have trouble on ice. You have to have metal spikes to grab this ice if you're going to go any distance of progress at all. So you have to have these boots. You have to have a specially outfitted snowsuit that's downfilled and it seals at every place so no skin is exposed, no snow can get in, and it keeps you warm from the beginning to the end. And it, it, it covers you. Also, you have to have an axe. It's made out of aluminum. It's about three feet long. It's strong. It's used for multiple purposes. You can use it to help you climb, help you walk, break a fall if you would fall. An essential piece of equipment if you're going to make progress up a mountain like Everest. Also, for the last 26,000, for the last three feet, 3,000 feet to the 29,000 feet, from 26,000 to 29,000, you have to have extra oxygen. Now, people have summited the mountain without extra oxygen. It's done. But it's not done wisely. And many people have died coming back down because of their, their lack of oxygen in those last 3,000 feet. It's called the death zone for a reason. And so you have to have two bottles of oxygen to get you to the top and safely back down out of the death zone on the return. Oxygen. Got to have the boots, got to have the suit, got to have the axe, have to have oxygen. These are minimal. And really to live the life of spiritual growth that you all want, that we all want to see in our lives, to experience life abundantly, we need several tools as well. We need first the Word of God, like those boots, to protect us, to keep us stable, to give us footing, to make us able to progress. Can't do it without them. We have to have the sacraments. God has given us this. The Word of God may be the primary means or tool that God gives us, but He reveals by His Word other confirming tools that give us further stability, further growth, further energy to move. He gives us the sacraments, baptism, kind of like that snowsuit, putting on this identity, putting on uh, this, this statement of who we are and what we plan to do. The Lord's Supper, like that ice axe, helping us progress in a regular way, a methodical way, constantly giving us extra grip and traction when we need it, when we feel like we'll fall. Prayer. It's like that oxygen gives us life. You know, there's only one-third the amount of oxygen from 26,000 feet to 29,000 feet. Only a third of the oxygen you are now breathing exists there. So imagine carrying all that stuff and climbing with only one-third the amount of oxygen. Some of you climbed 13 or 14,000 foot mountains. You know how hard it is to breathe there. Imagine doubling that distance into the sky. We also, on this journey, this mountain trek that we call the Christian life, we have to have these tools. And as we begin this decade, I want us to become reacquainted with the tools that God has given us to grow spiritually. And I see these things in Acts 2.42 as revelatory. It gives us a picture of the tools that we need, the tools that the early church had, and caused that church to grow exponentially, both in depth and width. I think it's the same thing that we need to find ourselves reacquainted with regularly. The Word of God, the sacraments that God has ordained in prayer, communion we can have with God because of Christ. These are a means, a means to help us grow. In fact, that's the way the Reformers refer to the tools for spiritual growth that I'm referring to. They call them the means of grace. And you can see what they mean. Means a way to experience the grace that is ours in Christ. It's a way to make our salvation effective. And what I mean by that is that they don't bestow salvation themselves, but they give us a sense of experiencing the benefits of redemption. We can know our position in Christ 
with these things being utilized, these tools. They help us grow in our perception and grasp of our salvation. You can't grow other ways. We try, and there are all sorts of uh, manuals and programs and seminars and conferences on it, but if they don't focus on the Word of God, God's sacraments and prayer, at least those basic tools, it will be amiss. It will not help us grow. These are the ways God makes salvation effective in our lives, that we sense the real place we have in God through Christ. So, let's consider this concept of the means of grace, at least briefly before we look at the first tool God has given us. Now, some of you are probably new to our church and aren't familiar with uh, our doctrinal statement. Every church, by the way, has a doctrinal statement, everyone. Some only have a few points listed. Some won't list them. They'll say, no creed but Jesus. They'll say that. But as you get to talk to them, you'll find out they actually have a creed. It's just, it's just not written out. And you'll hear uh, over time, you'll, you'll start to recognize. In fact, I hope that if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard myself or Pastor Brian or Pastor Nathan or one of the elders teaching, you would recognize the similarity in doctrinal perspective. You would see a certain stability about that. Well, that comes from a doctrinal statement. And our doctrinal statement is the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is a confession that relates to what Scripture says. It's an effort uh, made in the early 1600s to try to capture what the Bible says. You know, it would be difficult if I just said, go look up what it says about the Holy Spirit in your Bible. And you would, you would maybe look in your concordance, you'd flip back and forth, and it'd be kind of tough. Well, the confession has just simply endeavored to make these in, in certain topics and systems so that you can understand it better. It is subservient to the Scripture. It is, it is servant to the Scripture. It is not over the Scripture. But we use it to help us, to calibrate us, to keep us steady. Well, in connection with this confession, there was a system of questions or a series of questions and answers developed so that children could understand the doctrine. Uh, a shorter catechism and a larger catechism. I want to use a certain group of those questions to help guide us in understanding the spiritual tools that Scripture lays out for us. Uh, you'll see them to be very logical in their flow. And they start at just the right place for us to grasp what it means to endeavor to take this journey and the tools we need for the journey. In your notes, look at question 86 that I have listed. This is the proper starting point, by the way. We assume when you're going to climb a mountain, you're at base camp, you have air in your lungs, you're able to walk, you're alive. Uh, you have to be alive spiritually to engage in this journey. In question 86 and question 87, deal with having spiritual life, the right starting point before you can even pick up the axe or put on the suit or put on the boots or take in that oxygen. Question 86 says, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Starting point. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. You have to be there first before you can journey, before you can make your way up the mountain, so to speak. And faith in Jesus Christ is rightly termed here as a saving grace. And a saving grace means it's a gift. Faith, that is, trust or belief in Christ, that trust that you may have, that's from God. That faith is a gift that God gives you. He turns you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. When you were dead in your trespasses, God gave you life. He made you alive together with Christ. That's the gift of faith he gives you. You didn't conjure that. You may sense the time where you trusted in Jesus, no doubt. But that was simply the evidence that God had breathed new life into you and you believed. So it's a saving grace, faith. You have to be alive before you can start the journey. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which we quote often, but maybe don't think, uh, we, we fail to think about what it says more vividly. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Okay, let's back up. 
What's not your own doing? By grace, you've been saved through faith. It didn't say any part of that. Being saved by grace through faith is your doing. In fact, it says the exact opposite. Being saved by grace through faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So praise God if you trust Jesus here today. And if you do, it's because God has given you life. Not because something you have done. Not of your own doing. But by grace. Undeserved favor given to those who only deserve wrath. This is a starting point. Faith alone in Christ is what makes us right with God. Gives us life. We start the journey from this point. Question 87 is is the other side of the, the, the faith coin. It's called repentance. Look at what it says. Repentance. Oh, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. So again... Repentance is a gift from God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his or her sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Just like that faith that God gives us to trust Jesus initially, to, to give us new life, just like that, God gives us an apprehension of our sin and our need for a Savior. That's repentance, faith and repentance, this construct together that gives us new life by God's grace. God gives us these things, their gift. In fact, when Paul was preaching uh, later in the book of Acts, several chapters after where I read earlier, he's speaking uh, to people who have not yet believed. And listen to what the text says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Because now these are all Gentiles, no longer Jewish converts, but Gentiles. Who am I going to stand in the way if the Holy Spirit's going to come? That's what Paul says. But listen to what he says next. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, in the apostles' perspective, the message was preached, but it's God who granted repentance. Repentance is a gift. Being sorry for your sin is a gift. Being ap- apprehending that you need mercy is a gift. Faith and repentance together, these are a gift. Speaking to the pastor, Timothy, Paul writes, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So repentance itself is a gift from God. Faith in Christ is a gift from God. This is the starting point from which the means of grace then begin to feed us and help us grow and progress. You can't start a climb without being alive. And so if you are in Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you are sorry for your sins and recognize that Christ alone is the only answer for those sins, then you're alive. Praise God. You started the journey. God has placed you on the journey. But if you don't trust Christ, if you still think that you can earn your way somehow, if you don't have a complete apprehension of the depth of your own depravity, then you're still dead. And much of what I'll say will mean very little to you. Or they'll just become another set of rules that you trust in and they won't save you. So this message, these means of grace, are to those who have already come to a knowledge of the Savior by God's grace grace through faith and repentance. And you'll need some tools to grow now. And this is what is captured so wonderfully in the 88th question. Look there in, in your outline and you will see question 88, which captures for us what the main thing ought to be for us as a church and as individuals. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption. Okay, you've been redeemed. You're saved. 
What are the ways in which this keeps becoming real to you, that you have it communicated to you, that you understand it anew, that you are able to mature and grow and progress up that mountain? How is this possible? Well, the answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances. These are special things that he prescribes for us, especially the word with a capital W, the word of God, sacraments. And prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. If you are in Christ, as referred to as the elect, that these tools will help you grow in a knowledge of the grace that you have in Christ that will give you more maturity, that you'll progress with. Some of your numberings may be off there because of the copying. But the Word of God, the sacraments, prayer, those are the three things that I want to spend time focusing on. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promises to be present with the Word of God and His teaching, His preaching, and the baptizing of new believers. In Acts chapter 2, we have light shed on this from Matthew 28. Those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. We see all three elements there. Baptism, the breaking of bread is a reference to the communing together, the Lord's Supper as part of this. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and notice fellowship that is communing with each other, that's closely related to the teaching of the apostles. It doesn't mean we fellowship just when we play bingo. Uh, that may be okay, but it's talking about gospel fellowship. It's talking about fellowship because of the apostles' teaching. That's why we have communion together. And the breaking of bread, the communion, and then also prayer. We can now speak to God. We can come to God. We can appeal to God as people who are now related rightly to Him through Christ. So we've been given tools for spiritual growth. They're simple tools, but they are powerful tools. They're neglected in our day with so much happening, so many different distractions, so many well-intended efforts. We need to come back when we approach a monumental task like climbing Everest. We have to have the necessary tools. All the rest should be secondary to the main tools we need. And the main tools we need are the Word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. It really comes down to just a few faithfully constructed pieces of clothing and equipment that work in harmony to get you up that mountain. Boots, snowsuit, ice axe, oxygen. Got to have those things. Let's look at the first of these tools. The Word of God. Now, just a few weeks ago, Pastor Brian preached a wonderful sermon on the Word of God and its effect in our lives. So I won't repeat what he has already said from Timothy in, in unpacking the power of the Word of God in your life. I, I hope you remember that sermon and you'll re- hear it again on the Internet. You can get it on, on, our, on our site. I, I want to talk in more general terms about the Word of God, understanding what he said, and then applying that in our lives individually and corporately. Helpfully, our catechism again says in question 89, there on your notes, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? How is it a tool? How is the Word of God a tool? Well, it says that the Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's a wonderful 
explanation of the importance of the Word of God in our growth. The reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting, building up, comforting. You know, those boots that you have to wear to climb that mountain, they give the climber secure footing. They give the climber protection from the elements. They give the climber stability for his ankle as he or she walks. And those without boots will slip and will fall eventually to their death if they're on Everest. You can't advance without boots. You can't make progress without boots. And the Word of God is to the Christian like boots are to the mountain climber. The Word of God gives us security. It gives us stability. It helps us to walk in the right direction, straight. It places us on solid ground. It keeps us safe. It directs our path. It empowers us to move forward. The Word of God gives us progress. The follow-up question is, is number 90. Look there. It says, how is the Word of God to be read and heard? That it may become effectual to salvation. You know, I have this, and I understand reading it and hearing it preached, but, but how? How should it be read and how should it be preached, you might even say, that it might become effectual to salvation, that we might experience or grow in grace with its use? The answer given by the divines of Westminster Assembly is that the word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Maybe the greatest question and answer in the Bible or in, in the, the shorter catechism, combining all that Scripture says about the Word of God and its effect, taking in a very simple form the various places in the Psalms, the very places in the epistles that point to what the Word of God does and its effect. We have to attend to it with diligence. Let's consider some realities about this. They are listed there for you. First, the reading and preaching of God's Word. It will help you grow. It absolutely will. That's what it's designed for. That's what it does. So we have to be careful then in that light to have regular exposure to biblical teaching and preaching. Uh, this great picture that is given to us in First Peter where Peter writes, Like newborn infants... Long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. It's been a while since our boys have been little babies drinking milk, but Sherry's brother, sister-in-law, just had a little baby just two months old now. And it comes back immediately when you see that little baby getting ready for, uh, for eating time. And, and you see the baby just, just grab his, his hands and start gnarling with his little toothless mouth and start gnarling on his hands because all I can care about at that moment is getting milk. That's what, it, that's what he or she wants. And they're just tunnel visioned on us. They'll cry about it. And unless that child receives milk, they just, they just are cranky. Well, we should be so cranky when we don't get the Word of God. Just like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that it may, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So reading and preaching and hearing the Word of God, it helps you grow. Be careful of regular exposure. And you're here. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir to some degree. I mean, you're here. You're here to hear the Word of God preached. In fact, this is out of 52 weeks, this is one of five weeks that you won't get an actual walkthrough of a particular passage in the Scripture. We're starting Philippians. I know some of you, when I'm ready to preach a new series, or Pastor Nathan is ready to preach a new series, you go out and buy commentaries on it. 
and you're reading through it as I'm preaching through it. That's wonderful exposure to the Word of God. Reintroducing throughout the week what you heard preached and different angles on it from godly teachers that help us understand the Word of God. Because at our core, we believe it's the thing that will help us grow. And I don't mean to say you have to listen to eight sermons a week, but you do receive the Word at least on Sunday. You have opportunity to think about it again through the liturgy that's in the bulletin, the outline you have with your families, with your home fellowship group every other week. Spend time in it. Immerse yourself in it. It will help you grow. Be careful to have regular exposure to it. Also, we'll notice from this great answer to question 90, the word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith. Wow, this is different than what most evangelicals think of when they think of Scripture. I would venture a guess that many Christians today simply see the Bible as some kind of a magic book of spells. When things aren't going right, or I need special guidance, or, or what have you, I'm going to take my Bible off the shelf, I'm going to kind of flip open, and it says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. Well, that has some meaning for me in my situation, and we take it as a book of spells that we only pick up in reaction to things. Hardly something that, sh- that shapes our worldview in the way we live our life, in a lens that we're developing so we can see things through a right. We see it as reaction, or just a nice spiritual book off to the side that we don't know much about. We've got to stop treating it like a magic book and start treating it like the very source of your seeing. And you can't see right if you don't have it. Reading and studying God's Word requires diligence and care. You see that in the answer given here. And this answer is derived from Scripture. There are many passages that speak to how diligently, how we ought to prepare, pray, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, practice it in our lives. In fact, as Paul's writing to Timothy in his preparation as a pastor, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And no worker that need not be ashamed just picks it up off the shelf and reads it as though it's just going to come to him. They're going to diligently apply themselves with hours of consideration. Reading and studying God's word requires diligence and care. The analogy of climbing a mountain is right because it's difficult. It's a climb. It's, it's an endeavor. It's even a burden at times. Because of the things that come in in the way. You know, there's a lot. When you look at that mountain, you would think that it's not that far as 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 the crow flies from base camp at 177 up to 29035. But it is. Because between here and there are vast glacial ice fields with huge crevasses that go 10 stories deep that you have to navigate as you go. A huge ice wall that actually is hot because of the way the sun beats down on it and the snowsuits you have on. And you have to stay at these base camps that are on the edge. Just the edge, it seems like an, over an abyss. And you have to climb over rock walls and in various passageways that are just a few feet with a drop to the left, 8,000 feet. A drop to the right, 10,000 feet. So it's a long journey up there and you've got to be prepared and read and study. And know what it says. And to expect that we do less and have some kind of easy time of it fights against everything that we're warned of in Scripture. It also tells us to receive it, love it, lay it up in our hearts, humbly immerse ourselves, our minds, as Holy Scripture. David captured this when he said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David understood he was a sinner like us. And he understood the only thing that kept him from sin was the storing up of the Word of God in his heart. Uh, There are other things that helped him, but this is the baseline of defense against sin, no doubt. In describing people who hate God, 
Paul writes in the Thessalonians something that we should take to heart. He says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The marker of unbelief is refusal to love the truth. So the marker of belief must be loving the truth, which is the word of God. Receive it, love it, lay it up in your heart. Finally, and probably most importantly, stemming from this question 90 and related to this tool of the word of God in our lives to grow, put the Bible's teaching into practice. It seems simple enough to say, but it's so difficult to do. I think we all know this. And we can do this, though, in light of what is revealed in Acts 2.42. We can do this in our lives with the help of our church family, with gospel fellowship. You know, the word of God or the apostles' teaching is given and fellowship. It's understood that you'll receive these commands in the context of community so that you can put them to practice. I can only say personally that I have not experienced any lasting victory in any area of my life without the help of people. I can see what the word of God says. But I need others to help me uphold it by God's grace. It's in the fellowship of believers that we're able to talk about what is true and also what to do and then help each other do it. This is why we reworked our small group several years ago to simply go over the sermon again as a group. Not, not the sermon content so much as how to apply what the sermon says. You can't do all that every Sunday morning. But in your small groups, you can talk about it more personally with each other. That's why we do it. So we can apply the word of God, do it in our own lives. We do this with the help of each other so that we can follow what James says to be doers of the word and not hearers only. If we're just hearers only, we're deceiving ourselves. James says that if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror where he looks at himself and goes away and once at once forgets what he looks like. But the ones who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the word of God and perseveres being no here who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will grow. He will progress. This is why early in the church's life after Jesus ascends, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So, we're climbing Everest. To do so, literally, you need at least two months, maybe three. You have to acclimate to that kind of Altitude, which takes weeks. You have to travel to Nepal first. That's the angle you'll take up the mountain. Several weeks just to travel to the base camp. Once you get to the base camp at 17,700 feet, you have to stay there for a few weeks to acclimate as well so your lungs build up and your oxygen, your, the oxygen in your blood is at the right balance. Some people take the whole month just to get to the place where they can actually go to the next camp. Camp 1 is at 19,900 feet. I mean, these are amazing altitudes when you consider in our own country. We've just got some tall mountains. But in the continuous 48 states, uh, basically in the middle there, take Alaska out and Hawaii out, and you, you pretty much have 14,000 foot mountains as the biggest we've got. Yet your base camp, Camp 1, or base camp at 17,700, Camp 1 is at 19,900. Then a whole day to get to Camp 2, which is advanced base camp, and it doesn't look too advanced when you see it is at 21,300 feet. Then to get to Camp 3, another day's journey, only a couple thousand feet further, and it's 24,500 feet, and you're on a ledge with these little tents. Then to Camp 4, which is at, which is at the edge of the death zone at 26,000 feet. 
And you, from that point, really only have a couple days to make your ascent. You have to try to make the summit from base camp or to, from camp four at 26,000 feet. You then have to go to the summit by leaving at midnight before in the dark. Because you have to summit by 2 p.m. If you don't, you've got to turn around no matter where you are in the journey. And it takes sometimes 12 hours to get there. Then it could take six hours to get back. 18 hours from Camp 4 with two bottles of oxygen that last 10 hours each. That's what you've got. That's the reality of the challenge. But it can be done with those tools. It is done on a regular basis. 2,700 people have done it since the first summit in 1953. But I assure you, it was not done without these tools. So now we are equipped for the climb. We have our boots on now. The Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us life, for giving us faith and repentance, for reliance upon Christ alone for our salvation, for giving us life. Lord, we seek growth for your glory. Lord, we need these tools and you've given them to us graciously. Pray that you give us diligence to apply them in our lives. This morning we have considered the word of God, the stability it gives us, the sure footing we have because of it, safety it brings, protection. Pray, God, that we would avail ourselves regularly of this great tool as we see progress in our lives provided by your grace. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and ask for them in 2010 and beyond that they would be reacquainted with these tools that you have granted us. And I pray, God, that you would receive glory as your people grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn and sing 94, verses 1, 2, and 3 of How Firm a Foundation. We'll stand as we sing 94 and the elders prepare the table. <laughs> 